Let's pray. Our God, open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds to your word. Teach us and instruct us how we are to live. May all that comes out of my mouth be in line with what your word says and not swerve to the right or to the left. And Lord, I thank you for the privilege of proclaiming your word this morning. Holy Father, build your church, save sinners, and glorify your name. Amen. Growing up as a young boy, one of the most memorable things to do was to get some famous person's autograph. I remember going to get Alabama football players' autographs or professional baseball players' autographs and figures like that. Most of the time you get a football or a baseball or a baseball card of that athlete and you get them to sign it, some type of memorabilia. I remember one time Sean Alexander, famous Alabama running back and NFL great, came to my home church. Uh, I think I was in middle school or high school. I had nothing for him to sign, but I found something. I had the church bulletin. He, he did sign it, and I think, I think I still have it to this day. You probably noticed when you go up to Nashville or you've been to New York or Los Angeles, you go to a restaurant and you see celebrities' pictures on the wall and their autograph. The celebrity will usually have a, a message about the restaurant, but then they'll have their autograph there showing that this person indeed ate here and liked it. But have you ever stopped to think about why we get autographs? What's significant about getting an autograph? I mean, I remember many times standing in long lines in order to get someone's autograph. Why do we do these things? Well, it goes back to our obsession with celebrity. We somehow think that these fellow human beings are somehow superheroes. An autograph is proof to everyone that you were in the presence. You had fellowship, though brief, with this person. You were in their presence. You breathed the same air that they did. But for some of us, we weren't physically around that person that we have the autographed item. It's kind of like the movie The Sandlot, and where the main character, Scott Smalls, his stepfather owns a, a Babe Ruth autographed baseball. The stepdad had never physically been around Babe Ruth, but it's about the fact that Babe Ruth touched that baseball. The autograph proves it. And that's what made it such a valuable commodity, and of which, of course, was a major part of the movie storyline. Now, with the fact that we have cameras in our hands at all times, when we see a celebrity, we can say, hey, can you take a picture of me? And you can get a picture taken. And it proves to everybody that you were in the presence. You had a brief fellowship, if you will, with this person. We are really ridiculous creatures, aren't we? We fawn over being in the presence of another human being whose lot is just the same as ours, is still a fallen image of God and subject to death and will one day be forgotten. We as humans crave greatness, 
and also desire fellowship with greatness. It will forget what happened 2,000 years ago is still present for reality for us today. The greatest one enfleshed himself and came to fellowship with us. He didn't leave an autograph, but he left his word, left his word and left his promise with us. He is the perfect image of the invisible God, and death is subject to him. He left us with the gift of the Holy Spirit who draws us to himself and to others who know him. So this morning we'll examine 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In this text, the Apostle John, in a way, takes what he said in the prologue of his gospel and shows us the same concept but at a different angle. While the prologue of the Gospel of John emphasizes the divinity of our Lord and Savior Jesus and its implications, 1 John 1, 1 through 4 emphasizes the humanity of our Lord and Savior and its implications. John explains, hey, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him, we were in his presence. God was presence, present with us through the man Jesus Christ. So 1 John 1, 1 through 4 shows us the eternal word became fully human in every way. He became fully human for our fellowship. And as we go through this, we will see why Jesus' humanity is essential for our fellowship and presence with the Father and the Son. But first, the eternal word of life became fully human in every way. Look at verses 1 through 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So, written around the same time of his gospel, his other letters in Revelation, 1 John is written towards the end of the Apostle John's life. As the last remaining apostle and the only one likely to have died without a martyr's death, though indeed persecuted throughout his life and finished his life in exile, he is likely writing to second and third generation believers. And as time has gone by, what Paul and the other apostles had said was going to happen has happened. It is happening. Ravenous wolves have come into the fold and deceived many and have upset the faith of some. In this instance, some have come in and denied that Jesus is the Christ, that the Son has become as man. He only appeared to be man, maybe a ghost, because after all, all that is material, that is tangible, is evil. Of course, they didn't get their views from the Bible. They got it from the gutter and plastered it on the Bible and in their teaching. And John has some choice words for these folks later on in this letter. He calls them antichrists. They also walked in lawlessness, using the grace of God as the excuse for sin. And for some, they said they had no sin. They were already perfected. And John has some choice words for these folks as well. They are liars. And not only that, but they make God out to be a liar. 
That being said, John writes to the church to encourage them and to make sure they have assurance of their salvation despite the cancer of these false teachings. And how does John start his letter? With this beautiful yet awkward sentence and similar to the way he opens his gospel. You get verses 1 through 2 again. Which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Verses 1 through 2 are not even a complete sentence yet. The main verb doesn't even appear to verse 3, but it is chock full with profound and theologically crucial clauses. First, he starts the letter with, which was from the beginning? The antecedent or referent of which is word of life, which is seen at the end of this verse. There, this is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the word of life. And again, notice the similarity of language of the gospel, from the Gospel of John's prologue we saw last week. Which was from the beginning. Again, mirroring the gospel account. He was in the beginning with God. He is God. God with God. Not two gods, one God, but distinct persons. The Son and the Father. And this figure John speaks of is eternally existent because he is God. Second clause. Which we have heard. Okay, this one from the beginning, the eternal one, we have heard. Who is the we? Well, we can tell from the rest of the context of this letter that he's referring to the apostles. Which we, as apostles, have heard. Okay, he's not some abstract theory. We have heard him. We have heard his voice. We're not making this up. We have heard him teach. We have heard him laugh. We have heard him cry. He is real as real can be. We have heard him. And not only that, but thirdly, we have seen him with our eyes. This word denotes beheld. We're not making this up. We saw him. We looked at the details of his face. We saw the real scars on his side and his wrist. We saw his nose. We saw his beard, his eyes. And his appearance was nothing spectacular. He was not glowing. Well, except for the one time he was on the mountain with Elijah and Moses. But beside that, he looked like the rest of us. Not only that, but fourthly, we looked upon him and touched him with our hands. We didn't grasp air. We grasped skin, muscle, bone. And John was often described as the one laying in Jesus' lap, his bosom, the KJV says. Jesus wasn't an angel. He wasn't a ghost. He was human, as much a human as every human who has ever lived. And all that being said, he goes on in verse 2 to say that this life, this word of life was made manifest. He who had been hidden for centuries and centuries has now appeared. The one whom the Israelites had known as Yahweh has revealed himself now as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son taking on humanity and revealing the one true God to us. 
So if you know the Son, you know the Father, because the Son came to reveal the Father to us. We can't, we can't know the Father apart from the Son. The Son came in the person of Jesus Christ. And John and the rest of the apostles were eyewitnesses of this. But they didn't keep it to themselves. He says, they testify, they witness, they gave their account of it and proclaim it to us. And what did they proclaim? Eternal life. They proclaimed the eternal life. Now you notice, eternal life is not described here as something you get when, you're, when you die. Look at it again. We claim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Eternal life here is personified. It is speaking of Jesus Christ. Jesus is eternal life. To have eternal life is to have Jesus. Christ is eternal life, and all those who believe in him become partakers of his eternal life. The eternal one, the son, appeared in time as a man to men that we as men, mankind, could become partakers of his divine nature and that we have eternal life with him. Okay? So why is the son assuming or taking on humanity important? Why is the body important? Why is the soul important? Well, to be human is to be a soul. To be a human is to be a body. The soul and body are not two diametrically opposed entities. They are distinct but not opposed. I know it's popular to today to think that they are opposed or can be opposed. We've lost all understanding of what it means to be human. And you see this all over in today's modern Western culture. We see the soul and the body as having no rhyme or reason. You can be someone trapped in a body that doesn't truly represent you. Brothers and sisters, that is a false understanding of what it means to be human. But you know, we have similar views in this and that has creeped into churches. We imagine eternal life as a disembodied state up in the clouds, which is not a belief based on the Bible. The body is seen as, a, as worthless in many respects. And death is not seen for the evil that it truly is. Death is not a happy thing. It's sad. Funerals aren't celebrations. They are sad events. Now, of course, if that person knew Jesus, we don't grieve as others would, but we do grieve. It's still sad, and we all know that. Even though death has reigned since Adam, death still seems awkward and absurd, doesn't it? It's still strange to fathom a soul separated from the body which is what death is, a separation of the soul from the body. And it's not the way it's supposed to be. When the Son came to earth 2,000 years ago, he came in full humanity. The eternal God remained eternal God, yet assumed humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. 
when the Virgin Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every aspect of what it means to be human, he took on. He took on a human body, flesh, bones, muscles, organs, a soul, who a personality is, and a will, full human decision-making capabilities. Why? Why did he do this? So that every aspect of our humanity would be redeemed. Because every aspect of our humanity has been tainted with corruption and sin. The body, the soul, the will, all of it. The body, well, many of you can testify to the effects of living in a fallen world with all of our ailments. The soul, with all of the effects of our whole personality. And the will, since it is in total bondage to sin. Jesus took on all of this to redeem all aspects of our humanity. For those in Christ now, we see some of those effects of our redemption now in our souls and wills through our sanctification. And now we presently look forward to the redemption of our bodies at the resurrection. We're made whole through Christ's humanity. So why does John put such a heavy emphasis on these essential aspects of Christ's appearing? Because as we remember, some were teaching that Jesus wasn't the incarnate one. He didn't come in the flesh. He just appeared to be human, like an angelic appearance or something like that. And in later centuries, there came the denial that Jesus had a fully human soul and will. And even in today, even up to today, grace, Christ's full humanity and full divinity are still under attack. Listen, if Christ did not come in full humanity, then let's go pack up and let's leave. We are wasting our time here. We have no gospel. We have no hope of salvation. And you see, that's why. That's why he calls these folks who are saying this Antichrist. He doesn't play around because this is serious. Christ came as fully human to redeem fallen humanity. But what ultimately is our salvation about? Okay, we know we have eternal life in Christ and are redeemed, but is there an ultimate goal in all this? That leads us to the second part of John's introduction, verses 3 through 4. The eternal word of life became fully human for our joyful fellowship. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, to, things so that our joy may be complete. So, after all this talk, John finally gets to his main verb, after again repeating himself. Repetition in general is an important rhetorical device, even more so in the Bible. What we have seen, what we have heard, we proclaim to you. Why does he proclaim this message? What's the goal? Remember all that talk a few months ago about the importance of the so that's in the Bible? The so that gives you the why to the proposition. Well, here you go, another one. Verse 3 again. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that 
you too may have fellowship with us. Again, the we and us refers to the apostles. But he says, we've claimed this to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Now that word fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia. That's where we get the name of our community groups here at Providence, K-groups. Stands for koinonia groups, fellowship groups. But when we talk about fellowship, true fellowship, it's a community that's bounded together by some common possession. For the church, it's our common faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. In fact, that is the beauty of the church. It's not a club of common hobbies. At least it's not supposed to be. It's not a social network of those who are alike and have the same types of jobs. At least it's not supposed to be. No, it's a community in which the only thing that truly binds us together is our shared love for the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a diverse group that ordinarily would not associate with one another naturally, but supernaturally have kinship because of the Holy Spirit's work in them pointing, pointing them to Jesus. John and the apostles proclaimed this so that we would have kinship with them. But he adds another clarifying statement about this fellowship. Our fellowship is not only with each other, but with the Father and the Son. I can call God my Father because of my relationship to the Son. The Holy Spirit draws us into this fellowship, and he is the bond between us and the Father and the Son. We now have life with God. And because we have life with the Father and the Son, we have life with each other as a church. And those fellowships always go together. When you have fellowship with the Father through the Son, you will also have fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ as a church. Because when we are reconciled to God, we are reconciled to one another as those in Christ. See, this is the reason why Christ came to this earth, that he died for our sin, that he rose from the grave, so that, so that we would have fellowship with God and with one another. Sinful man can't have fellowship with the holy God. Our sin has to be atoned for. We have to have Christ's righteousness put onto our account. We have fellowship with the Father because of the Son's payment for our sin and His righteousness clothing us. And now we can eternally fellowship with Him. What is one of the most dreadful things you can experience? Think about this. And it's especially prevalent during the holidays. It's loneliness. To be lonely is not good. We were created for community. We were created to commune with God and with each other, to have fellowship. And to have true fellowship with God through Christ means to share in his character. We love what he loves, and we hate what he hates. We desire what he desires, and will what he wills. As Jesus was in perfect union with the Father, therefore willed everything according to his will, Christ has given us the Holy Spirit that we may now desire the things that God desires. But 
However, we are still in the fallen flesh and fail continually. But God has given us fellowship with one another. So we have fellowship with other believers of whom we can confess our sins to and to hold us accountable. True fellowship with God will include fellowship with his people. You can't separate the two. And we as Christ's people must shepherd our brothers and sisters and make sure that they aren't alone. We have a a mutual responsibility for one another. Another thing that's commonly forgotten in today's age. As believers, as church members, we have a mutual responsibility to one another. But again, there's even something more ultimate here than just the fellowship. The fellowship is a means to something. The fellowship leads to, as we see in verse 4, joy. Joy. John says he is writing these things, these words, these statements, specifically what he had just said about the fellowship, so that our joy may be complete. He goes from us, apostles, you, the recipients of the letter, to our, the collective, all of us in Christ. Our fellowship with God and with each other is where the ultimate joy comes and is complete. Everybody that's ever lived wants joy. You, me, everybody. But again, in our fallen state, in our bondage to sin, we seek it in created things rather than the creator. We get filled with these things, yet more miserable than when we were without them. That's every single thing that is created will do. You think joy is going to come from being filled with them, and when we're filled with them, we're more empty than when we were without them. However, our greatest desire, joy, is given to us by fellowship with God and with those who know God through Christ. I've I've had the privilege, and and many of you have had this privilege as well. You've been able to be around Christians uh, in other parts of the world where they don't have a whole lot. Not only lacking materially, but they don't have a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ. But for the small group that they have, there's a bond there that you see that really paints a a great picture of this. When you're at a place and the only other Christians that are there you can count on one hand, there's a fellowship there you cannot describe. You're in the bunker together and there's a brotherhood and a sisterhood like no other. And also you observe the joy they have in having God and having each other. They don't have a nice building to meet in or nice instruments or a big pulpit or even family members that that are willing to join in the fellowship. But the worship gathering is sweet and God-honoring, a taste of heaven. True fellowship is forged from the times oftentimes by the stripping away of all these distractions. The true fellowship honors our Lord and Savior and bonds us together in love. 
The beginning of John's first letter reminds us that the eternal word of life, Christ, became fully man in every way so that we may have joyful fellowship with God and with one another. God the Son became flesh and dwelt among us, as we saw last week. Why does that matter? Our God is a God who truly fellowships with us. He he became like we are, and he can sympathize with us. There is nothing about your human experience that Jesus cannot sympathize with. You've been abandoned, so was Jesus. You've been slandered and hurt, so was Jesus. You have endured trying temptation, so did Jesus. We don't have a Savior who cannot sympathize with us in everything. Now, that's not to say, hey, Jesus did all this, so you need to toughen up. No. That's the fact that we can be comforted in knowing our God is not a distant God. But Christ is the one who fellowships with us and is our advocate before the Father. There is nothing, nothing that we all go through that I cannot go to my Savior and draw comfort. You draw comfort when you can talk to someone who's been through the same experience, right? But that's limited to that specific experience. Well, there's no experience in your life that you cannot draw comfort from Christ's fellowship. He is the eternal sympathizer with our experience. For he was and is and for the rest of eternity fully human, yet without sin. And when we know this, we can have joy in the midst of our suffering. Because our God didn't leave us hanging in sin, death, and abandonment. He came to crucify sin in the flesh, to bring eternal death to death, and to bring us into fellowship with him and the Father. We have fellowship with God and with one another through Jesus. So what what joy, what joy can we sing with every single day because of our Savior? Do you know this Savior? If not, think about these things in life that we see. Death, sadness, loneliness, evil, sin. They are all on us. We brought this to the earth. They are the consequences of our sin. Not just some people's sin, not just other people's sin, all of us. You and me. You personally are separated from God because of your sin. You have no fellowship with God because you are a rebel against him. You don't love him as you should. You don't believe him as you should. And therefore, all of your life is tainted with sin and corruption. And the consequences for your sin is your eternal death. Separation from God forever. But... God, as we have been talking about so much this morning, did something. Christ the Son became man and dwelt among us. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He then, on the cross, became sin for us, meaning sin's curse for our sin was placed on him. He died and was buried, 
But then he rose from the grave defeating death. There's not an aspect of hell he did not experience for us. There's not an aspect of humanity he did not experience. He is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but will come again to this earth to clear out all wickedness and renew this earth. And his people, those who trust in him, will live eternally with him. To receive this eternal life, you must repent. You must turn from your rebellion and sin and trust in Jesus' death and resurrection alone to save you. And you know what? He will. Call on him today. Pray to him today. Say, Lord, I confess my sin before you. You are right and I am wrong, but I trust in what Jesus did on the cross for my sin. And if you need further counsel on this, we'll have pastors in the back who'd love to talk to you about it. But better yet, talk to the person next to you in the pew. They'd love to talk to you about what Jesus means and why he came to this earth and how to have fellowship with him. The eternal word of life came to us that we may have eternal fellowship with him. And brothers and sisters, go about your day, your week, your month, every day of your life, and the joy of this reality. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your fellowship and that you are our Father. Lord Jesus, thank you for revealing the Father and gaining our access to him. Holy Spirit, Thank you for sealing us for the day of redemption and bonding us to the Father and the Son and to each other. Lord, give us the grace to walk in this reality today. In the Savior's name, amen.